So as kids are leaving today, I want to mention um, it is Father's Day, and so here's how we want to celebrate this for just a moment today. Um, if you are a male, some of the leaving tell me that they are, that's good, yep, um, and you had a father, which is every one of you if you're alive, um, we would love for you to stand and we can just say thank you to you and the way you invest in the lives of others, and so want to make it clear, we believe in the church, you're called um, to help guide others, so will you stand, all the, all the men who are here today, please stand, and we just want to say thank you for your investment in the lives of others. So I was thinking this week, this is the end of our series on uh, the parables of Jesus, the stories from Jesus. And so I was thinking about how um, it doesn't matter what um, industry you're part of or school you've been a part of or event you have attended, um, basically anything culturally in the last several years, if two or more people are gathered, there's a, a conversation that happens and it's constant around one particular idea and it's this, the idea of creating culture. You see, you can't read or listen to um, or go to any event that talks about any kind of leadership in any sphere of the world in which they don't talk about culture. And so, um, right, whether you're a boss or you have a boss, someone's talking about culture at some level. And so here's why I'm saying this. Um, I'm going to give a definition of what culture is because I think it's helpful because sometimes you hear people say, we're just trying to create culture. And you're like, That's great, but what are you trying to create? What is culture? And so here's a definition we'll use to define culture today. Culture is the societal norm, values, and beliefs that a group of people ascribe to. Culture is the societal norms, values, and beliefs that a group of people ascribe to. Now here's why your boss or you or others talk about culture. Culture, over time, can be changed. You can change an environment. Over time, we can recreate what is normalized, what is valued, and what is believed. That is true. That can and does happen. This idea is not necessarily new, but maybe the emphasis in which we talk about it might be relatively new. But we see this idea of creating culture play out in all kinds of places, all kinds of spaces, right? Our own families have cultures. They're unique to us and whoever lives in our homes. Um, but we see it play out, especially one area that I think it's obvious that it plays out is in terms of teams, Right? You can talk about work teams, but, but sports teams for just a minute. Bear with me. I'll see about how it's so, and this week is probably appropriate. If maybe you watch some of the NBA finals, um, I watched a little bit here and there. And so one thing that was fascinating to me is after, I don't know, it might have been game three. I don't remember which one. Um, but Draymond Green is a starter for the Golden State Warriors, and they basically benched him for the fourth quarter. He was playing poorly. He wasn't adding to the team's value. He was not producing in ways that were helpful. In fact, he was a detriment. He was a minus, which is not a good year to be like a plus, right? Plus or minus, makes sense. He was a minus for the stretch he was on the floor. So they had to take him out of the game. Now, this is a guy who is one of their highest paid players. He's been an all-star in the NBA. He had one of two options. Obviously, no one likes to not be played when you're on a team and it's a big deal. He could have pouted publicly about it. He could have made a big deal. Instead, what he did was the next game, he played even better, and he played better the rest of the series. Now, it took some guts for a coach to pull a starter and not play him in the fourth quarter, um, but, but it spoke to a unique thing. They have a unique team culture. Now, we've also seen, that's a, that's a good culture, we've also seen poor cultures in teams, right, where coaches belittle players, 
where it's about we don't we normalize lack of work ethic that it's okay to kind of just not play hard on defense that it's just about me I'm not really talking about results right I'm not talking about winning or losing I'm talking about unique culture because in one culture people typically thrive they get better they grow they become something that they weren't before people believe in them the other side of that is in a place in which culture is poor people don't typically grow they regress to the worst common denominator. And so, culture is created not so much through results as environments. What kind of environment are we creating? And culture is largely shaped by the environment. See, culture is multi-layered, all right, and we could talk about culture at large, right? We know there are even subcultures because there's some obvious things that people accept and don't accept. And so some of you are going, now, okay, what in the world are you trying to say? I thought you were talking about Jesus and his parables. Okay, culture is not bad. Some is good. We start talking about broader culture. In fact, it's good that in our culture, kids can get an education. There's some semblance of care for senior adults. Those are good cultural values. There are poor cultural values, like working as much overtime you can is a great thing, uh, never resting. Like, those are not good cultural values. However, there should be a unique culture for people who are followers of Jesus. And it should look radically different than the dominant culture of any place in the world. We would call this kingdom culture. Kingdom culture is shaped by the words, teachings, life, and ministry of Jesus. Kingdom culture is concerned about manifesting the love of Jesus and being his witnesses, actually the word is martyrs, his martyrs to him. King culture is shaped by people who decide, I'm going to live my life seeking after Jesus, regardless of whatever the dominant culture of our world may or may not be. Sometimes the culture at large and kingdom culture line up, and it's pretty cool when that happens. Right? Um, I was thinking about that, um, and I'll get to that in a second. Sometimes they don't. It often takes discernment to recognize the difference. I'll use an example that might be somewhat helpful today. Uh, today is uh, what's known as Juneteenth. I did a little research on it this week. It basically, it's the day in which all slaves were set free, who finally were, who'd been oppressed in Texas. It was the last place. And did you know Juneteenth was started by churches? Not governments. It was churches who celebrated the emancipation of slavery. Pretty cool, actually, right? So the culturally, these things line up. It's a good thing, right? In fact, the reason churches took it was because they began to buy into the idea of Jubilee in the Old Testament. Jubilee, if you know what Jubilee is, Jubilee is where God's going to set all things right, and it was supposed to happen every seven, seven years, every 50 years. By the way, never did it because it messed up everything economically and all kinds of other ways, so the people of God just never did it because they were going to have to give land back and money and all kinds of stuff unless they chose not to do it. But it was God's intention that all wrongs are made right. And so the church said, hey, this is a wrong that has been made right, and we're going to celebrate this. Because freedom for all people to not be enslaved is a Christian value. So sometimes dominant culture, culture of the church, line up together in good ways. 
But sometimes it doesn't. And we talk about that and we say things like this, well, the world, and so you're like, well, what do, when people say the world, what do they mean, right? Like in the Bible, it says the world numerous times, and I don't always understand what in the world the Bible is trying to say. So there are three definitions we find in scripture for the world. One, um, universe or specifically the earth, right? Like since the creation of the world, that's describing the world. Make sense? The second would be um, the mass of humans who populate the earth. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's talking about people. But there's a third definition of the world. And I'm actually going to share this from John Mark Comer. I think gives a really good example that's helpful for this. And here's how we'll define the world in this way. The world. A system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. Now, maybe you're wondering how this is going to relate back to the idea of church creating culture and church as a part of the culture. In fact, there's a book written years ago by a guy named Richard Niebuhr, and he talks about this idea of church as culture and tries to talk about all these differing parts, but the one thing Niebuhr doesn't do a very good job of is recognizing there's always an integration. You can never completely separate these things. It's impossible. The church is always impacted by culture, and culture is always impacted by the church. Like, those things are non-negotiable. But you're going, well, what in the world does this have to do with the stories of Jesus? Here's what it has to do. When we follow Jesus, we do create unique culture. In fact, what Jesus does over and over again is he tells us stories about what the kingdom culture should look like to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. He tells stories that are known as parables. Parables are stories that tell us about God, ourselves, and the world around us. I would even add to this, I would say this. Parables are stories that show us what kingdom culture should be like. Jesus wants people to understand what does it look like to live as a citizen of his kingdom above all else? What does it look like not to be shaped by the culture at large? Because here's the problem for many of us. Most of us are shaped more by the world around us than we are about Jesus. We're more shaped by the desires we find on our televisions or in our news feeds or our social media apps than we are by him. And so he wants us to know that I want to shape a unique culture, a kingdom culture, in the midst of the dominant cultures of the world. He doesn't want to do it through military conquest, political ideology, authoritarian regimes, but through a radical alternative, and this is a kingdom alternative. And you ready for the craziest thing about what the kingdom alternative is? The church. The church. See, God could have created another nation, could have said to the Jews, hey, I want you to be a greater nation. That's not what happened. He said, I want to create a unique people, a unique ecclesia, a movement of people, a fellowship, a community of faith, so radically defined by my son Jesus, that it will permeate and overflow in every aspect of the world so that it will impact the culture in this way. So when he tells parables often, His hearers then, and even us today, we bristle at his words because it messes with the culture at large, the world in which we live. It goes against the grain of that more times than not. So today's story, 
today's parable. It's from the Gospel of Luke, and Luke was one who recorded, he was a doctor, recorded lots of stories of Jesus, and so this comes in a string of stories in chapter 16. In fact, he's talking about what does it mean to live as a part of kingdom culture, and there's a, a phrase in this paragraph that's always so hard for us. This is not our text for the day, but is fitting that's right above this text. It says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In other words, in God's kingdom culture, you can only worship one thing. There can only be one thing in your life that has your primary focus. One thing, one thing only. And it's Him. And it's hard for us. It messes with us. We have to seek Jesus above all else, no matter what else is going on. If Jesus wouldn't do it, we shouldn't either, right? This is what it means to be Christian. It means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And then Jesus tells this parable that may mess with us just a little bit. He says this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. I should just mention to you, so that you know, Hades is known as the place of the dead. So we read in the scripture, that's what it's trying to talk about, where the dead reside. And so if I was to summarize up this parable, I would say it this way. Um, a really lit- rich guy lived in a high-rise in any major city of the world. And right outside his high-rise was a beggar who was there every single day. This poor man, this beggar, was named Lazarus. And the rich man passed him all the time, but didn't give him much mind because he didn't care. He didn't care, but he would find out occasionally that Lazarus, the poor man, would go to get the scraps from his takeout leftovers that would go to the dumpster, and he'd be digging through the trash to make sure he found something to eat. The rich man didn't give him much mind. 
But Lazarus was so desperate and so hungry, he was happy to take the scraps. Lazarus, this man on the street, was so dirty and filthy that animals were drawn to the smell. And we tried to lick his wounds. Both men die. They're in the place of the dead. Lazarus is being taken care of, but the rich man is not. The rich man sees this and says, hey, um, Abraham, can you help me out here? Um, can I just have some water? And he's like, no. Well, tell you what, Abraham, can you tell my family that they want to make sure they do the right thing by everybody else, that they would do the right thing? Because this is awful. And Abraham says, no. You have the law and the prophets. You have the scriptures. You have the Bible. You have the church. You could have done these things. In fact, Jesus rose from the dead, but you chose to ignore all that too. It's kind of a bummer of a parable, right? I mean, it hits on all kinds of themes. It talks about eternity and the economy. It talks about right learning. It talks about all these various things. But here's what we can say with certainty about the parable. Okay, here's what we know about the rich man. Um, he was clothed with purple and linen, right? Uh, purple was extravagant. It was expensive. Normally, only royalty had it. So we know this rich man was very rich, not just a little rich. He was filthy rich. Maybe not like Jeff Bezos rich, but very rich. He feasted and lived in luxury every single day. It's what it says. So, so you know what luxury in that day was like. They didn't really have napkins because you didn't really have, like, you can make them out of paper, and, and you were going to wash that much stuff. like that. So do you know what rich people, for napkins, they took bread, and they would have loaves of bread that were designated napkins. So they would wipe their hands, clean their hands with bread, and then just discard the bread. So this rich man would have done that. That was a common practice for wealthy people. Lazarus would have been some trying to get the scraps from the table, that bread that they used to wipe their hands. Lazarus would have tried to eat. Here's what we know about Lazarus. He's the only character in all of Jesus' parables who's given a name. The only one. We know he's a beggar, which means he didn't have a job. And we don't know why. We know he had sores on his body. Again, we don't know why. As far as we know, the rich man wasn't deliberately cruel. He didn't order Lazarus removed from his gate. However, he didn't really notice him either. He didn't give much thought to him. See, what he did not do led to his condemnation. And so we see he's in the place of the dead, the place of torment. He asks for help, and none comes. These words of William Barclay, I think, are helpful for us today. He says this, it seems hard that his request that his brother should be warned was refused. But it is the plain fact that if men possess the truth of God's word, and if, wherever they look, there is sorrow to be comforted, need to be supplied, pain to be relieved, and it moves them to no feeling and to no action, nothing will change them. It's a terrible warning that the sin of the rich man was not that he did wrong things, but that he did nothing. 
And this parable was also just kind of weird in its culture, right? I mean, it's weird for us, but it was even weirder in its culture because typically in parables like this, stories like this, the dead would be allowed to talk back to the living. That was the whole point of the story. So Jesus takes what would have been normal, and he says, mm, nope, not in this story. The story says this, that you should have made the right decision how to live a long time ago, not expecting special favors at the end. But what's not in this parable is also important for us. What are the markers of the kingdom of God? And the markers of the kingdom of God are the markers of Jesus. Sacrificial, selfless love. Care for those around us. A call to be discipled and to disciple others. These are the things that we find that Jesus invites us into. And so maybe you're going, you know, is this all throughout the Bible? Well, here's the reality. All throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament... The church is called to care for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. Dozens of times you'll see in the Old Testament this call that you're to care for the widow and the orphan and the alien among you. So widows, orphans, and immigrants. All throughout the Old Testament. Over and over again the call is this. And in fact we talk about in human history the, mar- the, the measure of a good society is how they care for the oppressed and those in the margins. That's how we define historically good communities or kingdoms or nations. And so the problem for us is some of the phrases we want to throw into this story. Uh, this is not my list. One of the scholars is trying to think, how do, we, how do we put this in 21st century language? And so if you were the rich man, because right, most of us will tell this story, and, and let's be honest, we're going to put ourselves in the place of Lazarus, not the rich man. Because no one wants to be the guy who's not taking care of other people. No one wants to be the guy who's, you know, ignoring those around them. None of us want to be that person. So we're going to choose to be Lazarus in the story. But just for a second, let's put ourselves in the place of the rich man. And then we would use these phrases. It's his own fault. There are agencies to help him. He should go get a job. If we give him money, he'll just buy booze. Stay away, he may be violent. Some of these might even be true, and they might have been true about Lazarus. But the question you and I are left to wrestle with is not if it's true, but whether or not it's loving. Jesus tells this parable to mess with us, to ask the question, are you living as if you're seeking after me and creating kingdom culture? Or have you so allowed the culture of your day, the world in which you live and its values and its societal norms to shape you? Those things may have been true of Lazarus. We have no idea. What we do know is that the inactivity of the rich man had eternal significance in the story that Jesus shared. Jesus is calling people to live in the present world. What will happen in the future world. Jesus is calling people to live in the present world, what will happen in the future world. In other words, to live as if heaven is coming on earth, to live as a people of kingdom culture, regardless of what the culture around us, the dominant culture of our day, values. For us to be defined by the things of heaven and not the things we see. Why is that so important? Why does that matter so much? Maybe the last line for us is helpful. It's this. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, they have all the scriptures, the history of the church, 
the resurrection of Jesus, and yet they are still more shaped by the world in which they live than those things. Ouch. N.T. Wright writes these words, commentating on this. He says this, the last sentence of the parable, like a great crashing chord on an organ, contains several different notes. It speaks of the whole hope of Israel for restoration and renewal. It speaks, as does the story of the prodigal son, of the poor and outcast being welcomed by Jesus. And it speaks, for Luke's readers, from that day to this, most powerfully, of Jesus himself. One day soon, the reader knows, the law and the prophets will all come true in a new way as Jesus himself rises again, opening the door to God's new age in which all wrongs will be put right. What's it mean for us? What's it mean for us to believe that God is going to set all wrongs right What's it mean for us to live and recognize that God is for, right? For God so loved the world. God loves people. In fact, we've talked about this here and we'll continue to talk about it. We, we think we, for us, we talk about this idea that because for God so loved the world, so God loved people, that God's for people. And so we say, hey, we think God is for the lakeshore, for them, for others. What's God's for? We can articulate well often what God is against, but do we do a very good job of articulating what God is for? God is for people. He's for their salvation. He's for them to know the depth of his love, just like you and I. And sometimes, every once in a while, I'll read a news article and I'll go, huh, that's pretty cool because that seems to line up with kingdom culture, kingdom values. And I read that just this week about an article in Houston, which has the fourth largest city in America. Um, They have reduced their homeless population by 63%. Incredible, by the way. Um, they've moved 25,000 people into places they now call their own. Incredible story. So I just want to read part of this article. During the last decade, Houston, the nation's fourth most populous city, has moved more than 25,000 homeless people directly into apartments and houses. The overwhelming majority of them have remained housed after two years. The number of people deemed homeless in the Houston region, has been cut by 63% since 2011, according to the latest numbers from local officials. Even judging by the more modest metrics registered in a 2020 federal report, Houston did more than twice as well as the rest of the country at reducing homelessness over the previous decade. Ten years ago, homeless veterans, one of the categories that the federal government tracks, waited 720 days and had to navigate 76 bureaucratic steps to get from the street into permanent housing with support from local service counselors. Today, a streamlined process means the wait for housing is 32 days. I don't know if you caught that, from 720 to 32. Houston has gotten this far by teaming with county agencies and persuading scores of local service providers, corporations, and charitable nonprofit organizations that often bicker and compete with one another to row in unison. Together, they've gone all in on housing first, a practice supported by decades of research that moves the most vulnerable people straight from the streets into apartments, not into shelters, 
and without first requiring them to wean themselves off drugs or complete a 12-step program or find God or a job. There are addiction recovery and religious conversion programs that succeed in getting people off the street. But housing first involves a different logic. When you're drowning, it doesn't help if your rescuer insists you learn to swim before returning to shore. The article is like 25 pages long, so I'm not going to read any more. I'll stop there, right? Um, but I couldn't help but think, I, I don't know anything about the city of Houston, honestly. I've been there twice, to the airport once, and then stayed at a friend's aunt and uncle's house, never even saw the city. Know nothing about Houston, but I know I like that. I know that that looks like on earth as it is in heaven. I know that the kingdom culture, kingdom value says, in my father's house, there's a place for you. I know this, that when we want people to know they are loved, we want them to know they matter and they should have a place to call home. And so we're to be advocates for those kinds of things. I don't know what the dominant culture or the dominant worldview is, but I know this, a kingdom culture, a kingdom worldview values people. Kingdom culture throws camp for boys and girls and offers us a radical discount. I don't know what it costs us in the end. We'll find out at some point in the next few weeks. We're not making money on that camp. I mean, sometimes we actually come out ahead, but that's because people have given us so much in donation, not because they paid for it. Food costs basically the 60 bucks that we charge. This last week, we had kids at middle school camp, and this next week, we'll have kids at high school camp. Right? Those are kingdom culture kinds of things. We we'll help form and shape people so they can know this, that you are invited to be a child of God, to know the depth of God's love. And so maybe, just maybe, the more we create that kind of culture, that kind of environment, we'll begin to say things like this, on the lakeshore as it is in heaven, or in Muskegon as it is in heaven. In other words, we want to live out God's kingdom culture in the world around us. And maybe, just maybe, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, We'll recognize that the rich man, his problem really was this, and it's the point Jesus is getting across. What had his heart? It wasn't the care of other people. It was himself. He was gripped by himself. His heart was grabbed by himself. So what might happen if you and I, our heart was gripped by Jesus? What might happen if we lived out of the overflow of love and care for others? What might happen we might not miss the point of this parable that you and I are called to change your heart and your life while there is still time. And you and I get answered this question. What has our heart? And I hope, I hope, it's Jesus. And if you and I will spend our life seeking to know him more, seeking to help others know him more, we will begin to recognize that kingdom culture can permeate every aspect of our life. That it will change the world around us. The more we seek after him, the more we come to know his love. It will overflow into our workplaces and our homes and how we raise our kids. In fact, some of you in this room who are fathers, you will become even better fathers the more you seek after Jesus. The more his love overflows in your life, the more you will begin to look and sound and act like him. And it will change the world. So what might happen if you and I, if we saw Jesus with all that we are, and our heart was most gripped by him? We pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. For the way you love us, may we find 
your love draws us in, that changes us and shapes us and molds us so that we look more and more like you. And so, Lord, we ask that you might help us to be your unique people, people defined by your love and mercy, that just like the story of Lazarus and the rich man, that we might find that we live for you, that we'd be moved to action, that we'd be moved to compassion, that we'd care for other people in ways maybe we never have before. So, Father, we ask that you might work in our hearts and through us this day. We might become people who look and sound and act like your son Jesus. We might recognize that our greatest identity is being children of God. So, Father, we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.